Hello and welcome to Somerset Stories, the podcast which explores the lives of the people that live, work and create in Somerset. My name's Lewis Webb and each week I'll be meeting some of the inspiring, creative and successful individuals and families that make this beautiful county their home. My guest today is Paula Carnell. As an artist, Paula built a successful career selling her silk paintings across the UK and globally. Opening a gallery in Castle Kerry, exhibiting in London and the United States, Paula was fulfilling her dream. Then, in 2008, she began to fall ill, becoming bed and wheelchair bound with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Since then, she's embraced organic and holistic health and discovered fascinating connections between the health of bees and her own well-being. Paula's also played a pivotal role setting up bee colonies at the Newt, which now produces different types of local honey. Paula, welcome to Somerset Stories. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me, and it's, it's a beautiful day. In, uh, are we on the border of South Somerset and the next one up? Yes, and Mendips. Mendips, yeah. yeah. Castle Carry is fantastic because you sort of can see a long way from, from the top of the hills around here. Oh yes, I mean there's uh, lovely walks. And we, can, we are quite central here, and because of the horrible road it's probably better to walk than to to cycle <laughs> so yeah but I've always loved to live on top of a hill so and, and have a good view. You've spent most of your life uh, your adult life in and around Castle Kerry haven't you? Yes. Um, yeah. But you were born next door in Dorset. I know so I've traveled all of about 30 miles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was born in Weymouth and then when I was about seven we moved to a village just south of Sherborne, Yetminster. So I've always felt I was a Dorset girl. I feel I have um, a right to, to the seaside there and the coast and and that is I suppose my true soul is South Dorset the coast and the sea but um, I was outpriced when I was I became an adult and I couldn't afford to to rent or, or certainly not buy anything in Dorset and Castle Carey was available and I loved it because it reminded me of how Sherborne was 20 years before you know, it's a working town, but it's also got that creative feel. You've got a real mixture of people coming and going. Yeah. Was it, um, was it the beach that you loved as a kid or were you kind of the countryside? Were you torn between those, those two? Um, well, growing up in Weymouth, you actually don't go to the beach. That's where the tourists go. So as a kid, we would go to the flinty, pebbly beaches, so I have really tough feet. I'm able to walk across any sort of gravelly, pebbly beach, which irritates my, my husband. But um, yeah, I think it's the sea and it's the freedom. And what I really love is the coastal walks. So I suppose growing up in Weymouth, we would go to the places that the tourists wouldn't go. And that's what I, I always like to do. I'm not a crowd lover. I like to find secluded little spots. I'm not going to tell you where they are. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fine. I think we have the same. When did you start, you know, sketching and, and realising that you wanted to express yourself creatively in, in an artistic way? I always, always drew and was creative. So at primary school, I remember having babysitters who would perhaps draw us and I'd want to draw them back. Yep, always always wanted to draw. I was also a bit of a musician. I used to play the accordion from when I was about four years old. So there was, and I had some quite intensive training, so there was a little bit of an expectation that I might be a musician, um, but it was art. Although looking back, I think what it was, 
was performing, although my art wasn't performance art, it, you know, it was painting pictures of flowers, but I loved the exhibition and I loved that performance of, of creating and then showing what I've created. So I think now with my work of, of and particularly the speaking, I love being on the stage and talking. <laughs> um, so I think there was this thread of, of having a message and wanting to get it across. And perhaps while my message was forming, then art was part of it. And by painting flowers and nature, it, it gave me that background awareness and interest in nature and in plants. Does that love of performance run in the family or your parents into that? Or was it something that you sort of discovered by yourself? Oh no, I was always the black sheep. So my mum was a district nurse, my dad was an engineer. Actually my mum's second cousins, there was a, some actresses who were on television and things, but we weren't particularly close with them. So um, no, there's probably been little bits of drama through, <laughs> through the family, but no, I was, always slightly different to everybody else. Did they know how to encourage that was or, or were there were there moments where you had to kind of push back and say actually this is what I want to do? No actually my parents were really open-minded and I think the key thing was that you need to be independent you know you need to grow up you need to find a way of looking after yourself and um, and so if you can find a way of earning money, then that's what you have to do. So I think that was a core thing for me, that if I wanted to do what I lo love doing, then I had to find a way of making money from it. So as soon as I finished my O-levels, and I was at a grammar school, I was at Digby's in Sherbourne, where there was quite a lot of um, expectation to have a career, have a job. So none of us ever talked about getting married or having children. It was very much, who are you going to be? What are you going to do? Um, and obviously there was a lot more encouragement to go to universities and particularly the Oxbridge ones, which I clearly wasn't going to go to. Um, but I, uh, I then sort of became thought of as the artist in my year and in, you know, perhaps in the school at, at some points. So I had that kind of encouragement. And then I, I didn't think I was academic because the school, so many people in the school were so academic and we were never told we were, you know, in the top 10% or whatever. So I'd always thought I was a bit stupid. And um, so, yeah, I, I suppose there was this desperate need to earn money from what I did. And I was so eager that I wouldn't have to do a job I hated. So as soon as I finished my O-levels, I went to Yeovil College and did a two-year foundation course and I organised an exhibition and I sold all my work. You know, I just got it all framed up and had an exhibition. So 16, 17, you know, I had an exhibition of my paintings. And that alienated me from the art school world because it therefore made me a bit too materialistic and a bit too business-like for an artist. Um, and so they were sort of pushing me towards the graphic design, but I always wanted to be an artist, you know, to paint what I felt needed to be painted. Do you think that in, in art there is a, a kind of ideal that you shouldn't be in art for in order to make money, in order to have a sort of comfortable lifestyle? Yes, and I think it comes from a lot of the teachers who perhaps couldn't, <laughs> and so they went into teaching. So. And particularly if you're not in some of the great schools and there's always been this idea that there's only room for a handful of really successful artists but this is where i've always 
been interested in um, business and how you can monetize what you do without compromising what you do. And one of the first things I did was when people couldn't afford my paintings and I'd, I'd done business courses, I was with the Princess Youth Business Trust and Livewire and I won all sorts of awards for my, my business ideas. And then I found that I wanted to sell paintings for a few hundred or several hundred pounds, I needed to. And then people could, would say, oh, I love your pictures, but I can't afford them. So then I thought, oh, I'll do greeting cards because everyone can afford a pound. But then I soon realized that people would look at your paintings, look at the cards, love the cards, pull out five or six cards that then were only, you know, 50 pence each. And, um, and they'd go, oh, I can't think of anybody's birthday. So they wouldn't buy anything. So then I soon realized that it was as much effort to sell something for 50p or a pound as it was for 500 pounds so you just need to find your market and I think that's the biggest problem that artists have is that artists tend to hang around with other artists and they make judgments on their customers based on their own and I think people who don't create judge quality by price um, and people who create they know quality because they create quality and that is the fundamental difference and you have to um, you have to value yourself otherwise other people won't value what you do before all that kind of started in in earnest you you went away to New York for a while after, after being pretty much all your life in the southwest yeah. was it important for you to to travel to gain that independence to be influenced by other parts of the world yes and i think growing up in dorset as a female if you didn't go to university, there was this, and particularly I suppose from the school I was at, it was, well, what are you gonna do? You're just gonna get married and have children. That was, and it was that emphasis on the just, a wasted life, which obviously now I'm all grown up, you realize that's not a wasted life at all. And, but that was the perception. And so there was this need to prove that I had lived. Also my father before, he met my mum and in the early years they were together he was in the merchant navy so he traveled around the world so around our house we had all these interesting objects that were from new zealand were from south america um, and he loved his travel and as a family we didn't have a flash car but we'd always travel so we'd have these holidays and our holidays, I now realise, weren't holidays. We would actually do a country. We would visit a country. We never went to the beach. We would all sit by the pool. We would go to the, the monasteries, the churches, the castles, and the landscapes, the hills. So we'd always toured and travelled, which I loved. Um, and I suppose it, it was really tricky because just before I went to New York, I got my final project that I had done at college, I had done on Covent Garden and um, I had done these paintings of a sort of bird's eye view of Covent Garden but with all the buildings flat so you weren't looking down, you, they were all sort of pushed over like dominoes and so I did these paintings and it was to commemorate 10 years of GRE owning Covent Garden and I did community projects with some of the, the residents who lived in Covent Garden and it was a big time of transition and then there was a publisher who saw my work, came to the exhibition and offered me a publishing contract. And then, this is 1990, oh no, 1989, offered me £500 for the license of one image as a deposit and another £500 if I didn't travel to America. And 
oh, it was so difficult because I thought, if I don't go to America, I will never travel. I will never leave the country. And although I love London, I didn't, I knew then 500 pounds wasn't gonna, wasn't gonna last very long there. And so I, I gave it up and I went to America. What was, um, what was it like for, you know, a country girl being in Manhattan, kind of exploring the art world there? Well, I suppose I've never really thought of myself as a country girl because I'd always traveled. And the thing about my parents was we would travel and we would at least feel like we were locals. You know, we never wanted to be those tourists. And when I was in New York, I had a friend who came out, who followed me out there. And then you obviously get to meet lots of other people. And it, I did separate myself from people who were clearly looking like tourists. And Manhattan in 1989 was a pretty rough place. And I used to get the bus in, I was in Englewood and I used to get the bus in and have to walk all along 42nd Street. And I soon learned that you have to walk with purpose, no eye contact. And, and that's what I've done. I suppose I've always, I've always walked with purpose. <laughs> So, yeah, I loved it. And my parents actually came out before I came back and we went down to New Orleans and, um, and we went to Florida, which I didn't like at all. But so we did a little bit of travel. New Orleans, I loved. Um, so, yeah, and I used to go out into the countryside around Manhattan. So I'd go up to Connecticut, Massachusetts. You know, it was fall, beautiful colours. And, and I got commissions. I would paint... Um, Again, based on what I'd done for Covent Garden, I suppose, I was on this, this sort of almost like a fisheye lens of places. So I did a whole load of paintings of, of Manhattan. But while I was there, it sort of made me think, right, I want to go back. I know what I want to do. I want to be an artist and I want to live in, in Somerset. So where did the idea for Posse come from? Well, I was doing business courses to set up my business. So I was with the Enterprise Agency in Yeovil and the Prince's Youth Business Trust. So of course you have to write a business plan and to have a business plan you have to have a business name. And I remember listening, when I painted I used to listen to Radio 4 and I heard this programme which was talking about successful business names and marketing. and. I can't even remember who it was, but they said something about the most successful businesses have two syllable names that begin with a consonant. And my nickname at school, because you couldn't really do much with Paula, I became Polo because I didn't like Polo mints. And that was all that a group of girls could come up with. So I became Polo and I was known as Polo and then it got shortened to Poe. And so Paula's silks or Poe's silks and then Posse just came out of thin air really yeah so posse was was born and I liked the idea I think I always had big ideas big dreams and I thought great whatever I do can come under posse so I did have posse silks posse publishing we even had Aussie posse for a while we had a distribution of greeting cards in Australia so Aussie posse um, then there was posse gallery posse shop so yeah I really um, I was quite pleased with that and at this point in your career, you are based in Castle Kerry, which in 2020 is, has a thriving art scene. What was it like when you, know, you arrived on the block? Oh gosh, it was an antiques town, really. There was about four or five antique shops. And actually I started the business in Sherbourne, got made homeless in the storms of, I think it must be nine, um, 
89, there was a, a chimney came through the roof. We lived in a flat and it flattened our, our place. So we then moved to Melbourne Port and I, I was running the business from there. Then we found a place in North Barrow. So we were living there and I would have exhibitions in our garden and invite artists that I knew and we would we'd just sort of have open houses. And I, you know, I used to do all my shopping in Castle Carey. I knew people in Carey and that was our local town. And amazingly, I'd had a, a big insurance claim where I had a whole collection of paintings illustrating the Midsummer Night's Dream were dropped um, in carriage or damaged in carriage. And we'd got them specifically insured because they had gold frames. And it turned out the person that did the insurance didn't make that last phone call. They'd kept our money, kept the premiums and hadn't actually secured it, which of course we didn't know. So that was a bit of a, a drama. And so we'd got our MP for Melbourne Port was Paddy Ashdown. And so Paddy Ashdown was absolutely brilliant in supporting us for the insurance claim. And, you know, so I got to know him and particularly his secretary um, really quite well. And I suppose it was a natural thing for them to presume that my politics might be in, in their wavelength. And I was actually working in East Anglia and I had a phone call from his secretary, Simon Thompson. And he said, oh, they're looking for someone to stand in Castle Carey for the local elections. Would you be interested? And I was like, crikey, no. <laughs> you know, I was like, what, 23, 20, well, yeah, 23, 24. So I was like, no. But we drove back from East Anglia and we always used to try and get back before 10 o'clock so we could get a Chinese takeaway to eat before we went home. And we, the town was busy, you know, it's quarter to 10 at night. It's really busy. And we ended up parking on Bailey Hill and there was a property there that had all the windows, it had been empty for years and all the windows were painted white. And we were parked outside it and I just suddenly thought, gosh, if this town are willing to think that I could be representing them politically, then this is a place to be. And then it was, that, that was the turning point. So I got a friend to get the details because I knew if I got the details from the estate agent, everyone here would know. So yeah, I got the details and I just fell in love with it and it became, one of my my goals then was to get Bailey Hill so it was quite it was 11,000 square foot it was an old rope walk there's factory buildings um, very different to how it looks now and um, it took about a year actually and then bought it which was amazing and so that's how he came into Castle Carey and we were the only art gallery there was a lot of people saying it would never work so um, so it was quite interesting and and it wasn't always easy, actually, because, because we were selling things which were supposedly for rich people. So people presume that you've come into it with a lot of money, but I hadn't. You know, it was 100% mortgage on 11.98% interest. <laughs> so it was crippling. I mean, really, really crippling. And we had to do so much work on the building. So it, it was really a huge, huge gamble that I think you'd only do when you're young and stupid but it was such an exciting project and we really did make an impact. And I suppose one of the ways you could tell is that when the estate agents start naming you as a, an asset to the town and then other shops would open and would start selling what you've got. So, um, you know, sort of form of flattery, but it was, yeah. it was nice. So I was only there nine years, which was quite a long nine years at the time. But when you look back on the town's history, it wasn't. But I, I feel 
um, very pleased to have been part of quite an influence on the town and the fact that the developers who bought it two people after I sold it um, have called what was our shop they've called it um, Silk House and of course I painted on silk and it was never a silk mill there yeah. so so that's quite nice it's yeah. a nod. I had a question about silk actually so what what is it about that medium that brings your ideas to life more than any other? Oh, well I suppose right through art school I really struggled to find a medium that I felt comfortable with and ideally if I'd come from the right background I would like to have been sent to Italy and studied with some great masters and you know and worked in orders but the time I was at college the people who were teaching us were the people that were taught in the 50s who were very much about expressing yourself so there was a lot of anger and abstract work and I wanted to paint beautiful things and I wanted to paint beautiful things really well so mastering any kind of art medium takes a long time and oils were, were difficult and expensive and they didn't have them at college and and I really didn't fit in through the whole college system but I'd heard about silk painting and then I went to a, a trade fair and there was this bloke wearing jeans with a pile of silk painting sets and I just thought gosh I love the sound of silk painting so I'd got his card and said to my parents I'd really like a silk painting set for my birthday so they got me one and as soon as I started I was hooked and again I, I wanted to do it differently so there was very much a silk painting culture which was women of the age I am now who were painting it as a hobby and painting flowing scarves but I loved the way the paint moved and I'd always liked fashion I always liked fabrics so there was just something really amazing about silk and over time I suppose I liked that challenge and I'm really somebody who, who likes to experiment and really change things but I also like to teach so while I was a student I got a job this was this thing about earning money demonstrating these silk painting kits so because this guy had this box but didn't know how to you know do anything with the contents I then got employed while I was a student to demonstrate and demonstrating is such a fabulous way of learning because you're painting and everyone's going what are you doing there how are you doing that how did you get that effect so you have to consciously remember everything you do and a lot of artists don't do that because they're just painting and they're in the zone if you said how did you get that sky they would go oh I don't know it just came but because I had come from that demonstrating I had to know exactly what what I was doing so then you suddenly you leapfrog with knowledge and experience because you've remembered what you've done so you can replicate things and then you build up a bit of a following because you're helping people you're telling them how they can have fun painting on silk. Do you think there's anything special about Somerset that makes it particularly good for artists? Well the landscape, um, the environment, I think from an inspirational point of view I suppose it it just attracts a lot of artists partly because they can't afford to live in Dorset so they come to Somerset and you're close by but you have the levels which love or hate them they're very emotive and we get affected by the weather here so we have the floods you can have the snow if you're on the Dorset coast you don't very often get that kind of diversity so um, and yet you're not too far from other places you're very central and and it, it's a passing through place. I think that's the key thing about Castle Carey. 
is that people coming from other parts of the country or even the world passing through to go to Cornwall or from the south going to Bath and Bristol or, or North Down, this is a, a melting pot of, of where people stop to have a meal, have a night's sleep, and then they realise the beauty of it. And you've got all the hills. And what's particularly nice about South Somerset is the colour of the stone. I think when you get round Bridgewater and the Somerset levels, you've got this grey, very oppressive stone and it can look very bleak. But Somerset round here, you've got this wonderful honey coloured stone and people have their gardens and the flowers and everything looks so pretty and you've got the thatched cottages and you've got tiles you've got this real mixture and and then you've got the sort of industrial bits with the red brick so from an artist's perspective there's a lot to see there's a lot of diversity and you don't have to travel very far to get a change during that period where you're growing professionally as an artist your career is you know going from strength to strength did you ever see yourself doing anything else no Absolutely not. And one of my early visions as a, as a student, sort of end of school, beginning of art school, was I wanted to have a place that was a focal point for arts. It was sort of like if you wanted, if you wanted anything to do with art, whether it's fashion, architecture, a painting, sculpture, you knew where to go. So I always had a big goal, a big vision of a central place that could be franchised, that could be all around the world, where people knew you go to Posse and you can find out everything you need to know about art. Because I felt that there wasn't, in the art world, there wasn't that. It was very divisive. You either went to that kind of art gallery or, or a craft shop and there wasn't something that was welcoming to all types of people. And something I believe about art is if you paint from the soul, that comes across in your painting and it's a message for somebody else's soul and what was lovely about having the gallery in Castle Carey is because we had we had the little shop at the front so local people would come in and we actually had one of the only colour photocopiers possibly in Somerset so a lot of business people would come in and use our colour photocopier and um, and then other shops would come in and use it. So we'd have people coming in who wouldn't normally go in an art gallery. And what I loved was when you'd have someone come in who'd never bought a painting before in their life, they'd come in to get a colour photocopy done. While it was being done, they stood and they've looked. And I remember one particular woman who worked in the bookshop at the time, and she just went, she just did an audible gasp. She was like, <gasps> I've got to have that painting. And so you know it took her months to pay for it she was doing 10 pound a week you know and she bought this painting and then she went on and bought more paintings but that painting healed her it was something that really connected with her and and that was what i loved it was that making art accessible to all but without reducing the quality yeah so i'd always had that vision and i always what i loved about the posse building was we had that scope but i i didn't have the money to do it at the warehouse and then my my first husband did actually just leave he it was all it wasn't his dream and the boys were one and three which was really difficult and i really wanted to be a mum um, whilst trying to run a business and it was my vision my dream so it was very difficult and i had a year then running it on my own and i never ever ever thought or even planned that I would move away from it but having children it made me realize that actually being a mum was more important to me than what I was doing there 
and and we were in a small town and it's like when somebody dies people don't want to talk to you about it and it, it was really difficult and people didn't know how to handle the whole situation and I wanted to be a mum and I wanted to be with my kids but I was working six days a week and I'd lost my probably my best-selling artist you know my husband the person who was working for free you know so it was a huge impact so I had it on my own for two years um, and then I just had a complete change. I actually, I was having Reiki treatments to help me relax, I suppose, to get through the whole trauma of divorce because it was in a goldfish bowl and I had to put on a brave face and pretend everything was fine. And um, so I had Reiki treatment and it was actually the Reiki that made me become more in alignment with what was going on inside. And I felt I couldn't put on a face anymore and I needed to get away. And I found this place and it had, trees all around so I went from one extreme to the other so from being in a goldfish bowl I went to this completely you know cottage surrounded by trees and just hid away um, and became a mum you know and I had a year where I didn't do any work apart from renovating the house but um, doing all the school runs going for walks with kids taking them to the seaside being a mum and and then starting to think what do I want to paint do I want to paint and then I re-established myself as an artist, but instead of worrying about selling other people's art, I just focused on my own career. And then I met my current husband and um, had a really successful exhibition in London, was top of my game, and I was like, yes, this is it. This is what I've always worked for. And then I fell ill. And it, it came about after exhibition. So I would do an exhibition, then I'd feel really exhausted, and I'd have about two weeks where I would sleep in between school runs. And then, um, and then these episodes would get closer and closer together and I was having a lot of pain and I'd just remarried. I was feeling very nauseous and tired. So I kept thinking, oh, perhaps I've got pregnant, but they, you know, I hadn't. And nobody could find anything wrong with me. So then I'd pull myself together and carry on. And I pushed on and then one day I just woke up and I couldn't do anything. Couldn't, literally couldn't move my arms, couldn't cope with any sound, couldn't have any light and I was entombed in my bedroom. Um, any kind of movement made me so sick. Uh, so it was like the whole of my body was, um, it, it was quivering inside. It was the most extraordinary feeling. It's almost like you've got your finger in an electrical socket and you're buzzing inside completely. Yeah, that was a very, very difficult time. I'd worked on the basis that when an artist stops painting, everyone wants your work because you're then, you know, dead <laughs> and famous. But when you're ill, when you're not quite dead, that is actually worse because no one understands what's going on behind closed doors. Mm. So, yeah, it was a, a very, very tough time. You said no one understands what's going on. Also, you probably didn't have an understanding of what was going on in your own body as well. No, no. And it was really difficult because they diagnosed me with ME, which I'm pretty sure is basically a diagnosis for we don't know what's wrong with you. Because I met so many people through online groups while I was ill um, and through carers who, who were also diagnosed with ME, but had completely different symptoms to me and different effects and came across it, you know, came about it differently. So a lot of people would have an infection and then just not recover, whereas I didn't have any of that. And also I looked through my life and I couldn't think of when I hadn't had these episodes of being tired. So right through my life I'd had 
problems with just suddenly collapsing really and um, so yeah so I was really on a quest to find out what was wrong with me but it also made me very aware of judgments I had and being a bit of a workaholic I, I actually have a cousin who was diagnosed with ME who was very ill for 25 years and I didn't really have a lot of sympathy for her and I just used to think oh you know you're depressed or just snap out of it all the things that we all say and then when I was ill and then given that diagnosis initially I thought that everyone was thinking that about me so everyone was thinking you know you're a lazy so-and-so and just snap out of it and you're pretending you just don't want to work anymore whatever but when you feel really really ill and your body is broken it you know it's it is really really tough and then when you start to feel that the medical profession is also looking at you thinking that you're lazy and that you don't want to get better and and they can't offer any help so then you become absorbed and focused on finding that one symptom that you can share with a doctor or somebody and they'll go ah oh, we know exactly what it is now we can fix you and so the whole system is very focused on trying to find one problem and then fixing that one problem and if they can't find that one problem you're not heard and one of the key things about chronic illness is people need to be heard and if you're ill you're ill and it's no good if someone says well we can't find anything wrong with you therefore you're not ill you know when you're ill and um and so yeah i, I learned a lot about um the systems that are in place to support or not with people that are chronically ill and um, and I also learned a lot about my body because I soon realized that no one else was going to fix me so that was when I found out about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and it was a doctor that was Dr Byron Hyde who was commissioned by the British government in 2009 to do a report and a study on people with ME in the UK and his report found that 65% of the people that were diagnosed with ME actually had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and it's a genetic condition and when he listed all the symptoms I could tick every box and it suddenly made sense so I then had to fight for two years to get to see a specialist who would give me the diagnosis and it you know it wasn't that I wanted that diagnosis and I even had a rheumatologist say I don't know why you want to see a geneticist and get a diagnosis like that because it's worse than the one you've got <laughs> but actually we all want to know what's going on in our bodies yeah you want the the right label rather than yes. you know the one that just sort of yes. seems best well yes and if you can visualize what the problem is in your body so Ehlers-Danlos it's all the connective tissue that just doesn't heal so it's suddenly explained the asthma I had as a child that's one of the classic things my resistance to um, Oh, I'm trying to think what they call them, anaesthetics. And my, my parents, my father, he's never had anaesthetics because they always make him feel so sick. So he's always had dental work without any anaesthetic. And, and I've also had quite a high pain threshold, you know, giving birth twice and, you know, it wasn't a bother. And, um, and I've also been very hypermobile and that's one of the things with Ehlers-Danlos. So I would dislocate, so much of my life, I had parts of my body were dislocated, but I had no idea. So then that alters your posture, which then affects other things. Digestion, um, we've got quite a few celiacs in our family and a lot of us are completely wheat intolerant. And that is another thing to do with Ehlers-Danlos. So it was just finally all made sense. And when I saw the geneticist, it was just amazing because he heard me. He, 
he looked through my medical records and I'd been under a rheumatologist for 20 years or more from being a teenager where I had unexplainable joint pains um, yet nobody had picked it up and so um, he just said gosh yeah you know you're a classic case and sorry there's nothing we can do we can give you antidepressants we can give you painkillers um, we can support you with physio and that was it but mm. in my head I then knew what was wrong with my body so I said right thank you very much no more chemicals no drugs and I went to a medical herbalist who happened to move to Castle Carey so <laughs> I could see her and she was from Dorset and I'd been following her on social media and just thinking oh if only I could get to see her but I knew I couldn't travel yeah to see her and um and she moved to Castle Carey and opened a clinic here I mean how amazing is that before you made that connection, what were the predictions that you were being given about the quality of life? Oh, well, I mean, my quality life of life before even the Ehlers-Danlos was I had about two hours a day of any activity. So eating a meal was, was activity. Um, talking to anyone, I couldn't, there's no way I could do this. Um, you know, 10 minutes of, of having anybody um, constantly in a state of fight or flight and your body just starts to waste away, you know, and you get other complications then. So you start to get heart problems, you start to get digestive issues, you get, if you're not moved around from bed, then you get, you know, your muscles are all wasting away. So you have to work very hard to maintain, well, to keep alive. It's almost like you feel like death is on your, your back. And if you just nod it off, that's it, you, you're gone. So there's this constant, battle to stay alive and it needed a lot of self-discipline so I knew that I had to be so careful about everything I eat there's something called a FODMAP diet so you avoid any foods that can um, aggravate inflammation or, or affect the body so that was when I started to understand more about the importance of organic food although I'd more or less had an organic diet but there would be things that you'd think oh well it doesn't matter you know if I have some ketchup or you know um, so I completely stopped all sugar, all wheat, all dairy, and you know, and tried to stick to this mm. FODMAP diet. Was was that a turning point? Were there many turning points? Were there big kind of milestones in in kind of your journey and, and going from you know these really drastic predictions to to where you are now? Yes, and. The problem is people, you know, I have people with Ehlers-Danlos who go, what was it that made you better? And the thing was that for that whole seven years, I was trying, I was working on regaining my health. And there are so many things that help. So there's NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. So you've got to be able to visualize a time when you're well. And I, I had this vision that I'd be 98 years old walking along a coastal path. And so I knew I'd walk again. It, you know, and I, in my head, I thought, right, I'll give myself 10 years. I was 40 when I fell ill and I thought, right, if I'm not well by 50, then I, then I'll allow myself to be depressed, <laughs> you know, but I'm just going to fight. And people would say, oh, you must be depressed. It's like, no, I'm frustrated and I'm angry because I'm not being heard or I'm not getting the support I need. But once I had the Ehlers-Danlos diagnosis, I was then able to access physiotherapy because one of the problems with ME is that the NICE guidelines will only treat you with cognitive behaviour therapy and um, antidepressants and painkillers. So, you know, you can't go and have tests for other things, you can't have other treatments and you get treated differently. So I had an amazing physiotherapist who just helped me build up my muscles 
I had um, uh, people that help with my feet because my feet are basically a sack of skin with a jumble of bones in there. So, it, you know, it's a lot of work to try and keep your muscles strong. So Pilates is really good. Changing water, so making sure I only had filtered water, that was another leap. Diet is just so key. Meditation, rest, pacing yourself. Um, I had numerous treatments. So I had um, cranial osteopathy for about four years, which really helped. There's just, you name it, I tried it. Um, and even some things that I don't want to say out loud, but I did them. So, and they all helped, they all had a, an impact. Um, but the herbal medicine, I suppose I, my body was already detoxed by the time I went to, to Lucy and I did everything she said. And the thing with herbal medicine is it, it is an energetic medicine. So you need to do what you're told and it's a holistic thing. So you have to change your perception of things that are causing you stress. So if you can't change the thing, you have to change your perception of it. And you have to take the medicines at the set time each day because your body has biorhythms and, and to get the maximum results from those medicines, you need to do it then. So it was amazing. Eight months, she got me out of the wheelchair, but I still thought I wouldn't work again. Um, but I started studying herbal medicine and then I came across plant-based minerals. And, you know, even though I'd studied nutrition for years, I still didn't know the difference between a plant-based or metallic mineral. And then I started taking these plant-based minerals and within two weeks, I didn't need my sticks. And your mind changes. When you are well on the inside, you then can start to dream again. And I think this is when people haven't had a chronic illness, they can't understand why people limit themselves. And you limit yourself as a way of preservation because you don't want to be disappointed by hoping for something you can't do or won't ever happen. But also, you know your body isn't up to it. So it's a very complex thing that you have to master to have good health again. So where did the bees come into the story? <laughs> well, I'd always thought that would be something I'd like to do, but I'd always been too busy. And then when I was ill and I couldn't do much, and I, to try and cope with it, I used to think, what can I do, not what can't I do? And there was a lot of expectation for me to get better and paint again. And there was a lot of people saying, when are you going to paint or can you paint? And there's people all around the world who have ME who paint, but I couldn't. I literally could not physically paint. And also I knew because of the Ehlers-Danlos, the work I'd done with my arm where I painted quite large paintings, um, I'd put a lot of strain on my, my joints, my shoulders. So my, my shoulders will dislocate if I just sleep funny, you know, getting out of a car or whatever and I'm dislocated. So I knew it wasn't wise to think about painting. So I started to think about all the things I'd always wanted to do. And it was also the way I'd coped with divorce. I would think about all the things I couldn't do when I was married that I could then do. And so one of the things I wanted to do was keep bees. And so I nagged Greg to get me a beehive for my birthday. And he kept saying, well, there's no point. You can't get out there. You can't look after them. And I just said, well, there's nothing else I want. Just get me a beehive. And I just feel it would be amazing. So he did. And, and so what I would do, I mean, again, with these invisible illnesses, you, you know, if you have got out of bed and you've got yourself dressed and you stand outside or you sit down, people think you look normal and you are normal. And so I would pretend to be well for an hour a week while the beekeeper would come and look after the bees. And 
And it's quite nice because in my head, I was thinking he'd think I was a fraud and I wasn't really ill. But talking to him now, he said, gosh, yeah, you're a different person. You know, I suppose energetically, he could tell what I could cope with and what I couldn't and when my energy levels were dropping. But um, yeah, so I learned everything from a mentor. So I was really blessed because I had one-to-one -one beekeeping tuition. <laughs> and you're, you're someone who, uh, when, when there is a subject or a topic that sort of interests you, you want to kind of dive fully into oh, that. Yeah. And you did that with, with beekeeping as well. Oh yes, yeah. Well, I think as well, and it goes back to the art, and I have a very strong, I suppose I'm, I'm quite a strong outspoken person and I have very strong intuition. And if I feel something, I will say it. And what I've found through life is there's a lot of people who want proof. And there's things that I believe that are so true. You know, I felt when I painted that I'd pick a flower that I'd grown and I felt that the energy of the flower had come through me and into the painting so I would love to have tested the the vibration of the the flower and the silk you know just see what was there a transference and by seeing people connect with paintings that weren't mine necessarily I knew there was magic in the world and I suppose I've always wanted to open other people's eyes to the magic and so in a way provide a bridge so when I first learned about feeding bees sugar and I knew it was wrong. I just knew it was wrong, absolutely with every part of my body. I cried, I was so devastated that we'd taken the honey and given them sugar and I just couldn't believe we'd done it. And when I said to my, my mentor, you know, but it's sugar. And he said, oh, it's the same makeup, it's glucose, it's, they've put glucose, fructose, sucrose, it's the same as honey. And I knew it wasn't, I absolutely knew it wasn't but I had to prove it. So that's when I started to read up and I was thinking, well, what is the makeup of nectar and pollen? What is the makeup? How do bees do this? Because um, even though I'm in my fifties, I'm one of these young girls who's come into beekeeping in a world that's dominated by the beards. And, um, <laughs> and you know, if you haven't been keeping bees for 40 years, then what do you know? So I had to start backing up everything that I felt was right and um, and by saying well I've been doing it for a year or three years and I've got healthy bees that isn't enough so you need the backup of the huge scientific community and when I started looking up things to start with with sugar and nectar and, and pollen then I started to find there was so much research about bees that wasn't being done on humans with ME or chronic illnesses and yet a lot of the symptoms were the same so that was when I was like oh my goodness me we are so connected with the bees so keeping bees started off as a hobby and just something to do that wasn't anything else and to distract me from the misery of, of life and then suddenly it was oh my goodness me you know what is killing bees is killing humans as well and everybody wants to save the bees, but it's one thing to say, oh yeah, you know, I want to save the bees and I've bought this pack of seeds, but you know, we like a nice lawn, so we've just had it all treated with fungicide or we've, you know, we're spraying this or, well, we only use glyphosate on our driveway. That's where the solitary bees live, you know, or, and people say, well, what can we do to save the bees? I really want to save the bees. Well, just buy organic food, stop buying in to this whole culture of polluting our food. And if you're buying wheat or um, fruit that has 
had chemicals sprayed on it to kill insects, no amount of washing is going to take that off. You know, you're putting it in your body. So, um, and the, you know, the fertility of bees is affected, their, their behavior is affected, their lives are shortened, their maturity, they can't rest. Now, isn't that amazing? How many humans have a problem now with resting, stopping, you know, meditating? How many kids are restless? Yeah, you know, it's... Yeah. And also, so Somerset obviously has a history steeped in agriculture and producing food. Um, and bees historically would have played a significant part in that, yeah. in pollinating, you know, apple blossom, all that, that kind of stuff. Um, is, there, is there anything about the area and kind of what people should be doing themselves and kind of the, the businesses that they, they work with to, to sort of make that relationship more mutually beneficial between ourselves and, and bees? Well, I think what is happening in Somerset particularly is the growth of fine foods, small farmers, small food producers who are producing extraordinarily high quality food. And what I've loved during lockdown is seeing those companies provide a service, being able to deliver to home and our small shops being able to sell the artisan foods and the good quality local food. And from studying herbal medicine and from studying health, we need good bacteria in our bodies. And the good bacteria comes from our locale where we live. If you have local honey, you've, you're having small doses of the pollen and the nectar that is triggering your allergies. So eating local is so key to our health. And Somerset has amazing cheeses. It has the, the ciders, the juices, the fruit. There's so much. And we have got a really growing amount of organic, and even if they're not certified organic, treatment-free, chemical-free growers. And we need to support them so that they're here to support us. Because every time you buy from food that's been shipped across the world, um, and mass-produced and in a non-sustainable way, you're supporting that. So I don't support supermarkets and I, I stopped su supporting supermarkets in 93 when they started opening out-of-town supermarkets and selling greeting cards because I could see my little shops. I had 700 shops in the UK that bought my cards and one by one, the country was losing its town centres as these shops were shutting. And you could go to a big supermarket and buy everything in that one shop. And yes, it's so convenient, but they were building extra roads. You then have housing estates that are out of town so everybody needs their cars. And these supermarkets, they wouldn't pay you when they buy from you. So I was a small producer. I was exporting all around the world. So I was one of the bigger small producers, but I couldn't afford to give 90 days credit to a supermarket and to have, you know, my printer was a local printer, so they needed paying in 30 days and it's not sustainable and it doesn't support our economy. And I love where you see these little memes on Facebook and it says, you know, for every pound you spend in your local shop, it pays for ballet lessons or, you know, piano lessons or for somebody to go and buy from another shop. And I think that is what is so key for a sustainable existence. Mm. And, and that was what drew me to Bhutan because that's what they do there. You know, it's chemical free growing, is sustainable, there's a lot of self-sufficiency. And I think this whole 
lockdown and this whole situation has made us re-evaluate our lives and I'm so excited that so many more people are now aware of nature, just aware of it and you know we'll start to notice if the birds disappear or the insects disappear and that's what we need is we need a tipping point where those of us who can afford to buy organic or quality food and support the artisans, it's our duty to because every penny you spend that supports Brazilian rainforest being burnt, you know, just to grow soya. It's not just for meat. If you're vegan, you know, it's not just a, um, a meat eater's problem. Soya is being grown all around the world really intensively and they're burning rainforests at an astonishing rate. And all the indigenous people around the world who understand their connection with nature, they're having their, their land destroyed by us for a short-term gain. You know, that soil is not going to be any good in five years' time. You know, it's, it's such a, we've gone beyond a, it's like, oh, well, you can afford it, you can buy organic food, you know, it's just something for the rich. No, it goes so much deeper than that. It's our duty to protect nature. And every time you put any kind of chemical in nature, in our bodies or on nature, it has an effect and you know we've things have to be recycled and if you start using products that do not recycle we end up in a mess mm. so i'm really hoping that so i suppose that's my message really from my experience of being ill and from keeping bees and seeing what is killing the bees i can see how connected we are and you know i'm not keeping bees they're keeping me they're teaching me and I'm learning so much every day, you learn something different from bees. It's just amazing. So I'd hate to see them wiped out. Um, you mentioned Bhutan yeah. uh, and your, your trip out there. How did that come about? Well, because I was feeling well and I was coming up to my 50th birthday and I felt I am on top of the world. And I suppose it linked with everything else I was doing, with the minerals, with the herbs, organic food and bees. And as, um, as quite a young child, I remember hearing about monks that lived in the Himalayas who had extraordinary long lives and were very healthy because they drank glacier milk. And the glacier milk has minerals in, and the minerals I take come from a glacier. So I, that was one connection. And then one of the things I really, really missed while I was ill was being able to walk. And that was what I wanted to do. I really wanted to walk. And of course, you think of the Himalayas as a trekking place, a walking place. And I'd, I'd done the Inca Trail with my mum and I'd, I loved walking and I loved mountains. And I wanted to do something special for my 50th and I wanted to be on top of the world and I wanted to be on my own. <laughs> and um, so that's what I did. And I, before I'd booked it, I started thinking, oh, I wonder if they have bees there. And when I started to find out about it, I found an article by um, Nicola Bradbeer, who set up Bees for Development. And she'd gone there in the 80s, 1980s, and they didn't have Apis mellifera, which is our, the European honeybee, Western honeybee. They had Apis serrana and um, Apis dorsata, which are the wild bees that you see hanging on rock faces that people climb up and hack down. So, but I had read as well that there was this growing interest in beekeeping and that they were now 
not having so many of the traditional beekeepers where they're in log hives or in the honey houses. Once I heard of honey houses, there was no, nothing going to stop me going. And the honey houses are where they keep bees in the walls of their houses. They build the houses with beehives in them. So they live with their bees. And I just like, wow. And I, I got to see the honey houses. And, um, and it's, so, it's so profound when you go to a place where people are inherently compassionate and calm and happy. So they have problems, there's poverty, there's, there's violence, there's alcoholism, there's problems, but compared to what we have here, it's nothing. And the people, the potential for road rage was there, but there was none of it. Um, the potential for, for misery was there, but it wasn't there. And their understanding of their connection with nature and their role in healing the planet through their prayers, through their, um, through their protection of their forests and their land was just ingrained. You know, it was just magical. And I, I suppose I'd experienced something similar in Hawaii that I'd gone to as an artist. And I loved that, that spiritual nature. And, you know, I've been talking to people now, I'm doing an online beekeeping course and, and I'm writing a book, Spiritual Being, and talking about names of courses, and it's a naturopathic course, but I wanted to call it spiritual beekeeping. But there's, spiritual is still a woo-woo word here. And yet actually it isn't, everything has spirit in it. And we talk about a spirited child or a spirited woman or whatever, but um, we have spirit in us. And so that is really what I'm talking about is the spirit in nature, the spirit in bees, the spirit in plants. Um, and you go to Hawaii or you go to um, Peru or you go to Bhutan or you go to Oman and you have people who live with spirit. And so I suppose that's why I love to travel is to, to feel that I'm not the odd one. I'm, you know, I'm with my tribe. These are people that um, have got so much to teach me because even though I'm a bit woo-woo for here, I'm, I'm so Western for there. So it's, it's trying to find that balance and, um, and then coming back and sharing some of what has rubbed off on me to try and get a few more spiritual people here so I don't feel such a fruitcake. <laughs> You're doing some work with the newts just down the road. Yeah. Um, can you talk me through kind of the early stages of that and also sort of what a typical week looks like uh, in your work with them? So the early stages where they had one hive, um, which was a worry hive with bees in, which was a swarm. Mm, helicopter. Um, so they had a swarm that had moved into a worry hive in 2017. And then there was a wild colony that lived in a lime tree along the avenue. And what was really important to me was that we didn't just buy in queens or buy in colonies. So they were happy with that. So what we've done is we've just used bait hives and we've used um, splits from stronger colonies. And we now have, so in 2017, there was one colony in a tree, one colony in a hive. We've now got three wild colonies in trees and then we have a variety of hives um, including a, a straw skep and we've now got 18 colonies across the estate. How, how does that splitting process work? 
It's a bit of a gamble. So when you inspect hives early on in the spring, you get an idea of the colonies that are really expanding well and likely to swarm. So a split is a way of preventing the swarm because when they swarm they're going to take a load of honey with them and you can't guarantee where they're going to go and especially in a state like the newt where if we're not there watching they can easily disappear into a tree that we didn't even know had bees in it. So what we do is we look through the hive and you'll see queen cells um, that are, are forming and so what we will do is take out frames with brood and queen cells and put them into another hive, a smaller hive. So we'll put between three and five frames, depending on the size and the strength of the colony. And then what happens is the bees rear a new queen. So your original colony will keep the old queen and your new colony will create a new queen. Um, and sometimes, if we feel we need to do it, we'll do it where we just have brood. They might not have the queen cells. And we've had really good success with that. And then the other thing we do is we put up bait hives. Now I work with energetic um, frequencies from the earth, so geopathic stress lines. And with my work, I've discovered that bees have preferences of where to be. So I douse areas and then I position bait hives where I feel the bees are likely to go. And we've had a really amazing success rate with that. So, and with my own bees, in, you know, I've got individual clients with one or two colonies and then I've got my own colonies dotted about and so I work very much working with nature really and understanding how bees relocate and where they're going to naturally swarm to. But the key thing is using existing local stock rather than bringing in other bees from other countries. Right. And some of the work that you do there is uh, educating visitors as well? Yes, yeah. So we do bee safaris and then we'd also be doing some beekeeping workshops. Um, so hopefully we can start them up again soon. The bee safaris were great fun because they're outside and what we'd be doing is walking around the estate where we've got hives in the garden. So these are not the productive hives we take honey from, but they're hives in trees or the skep is on an island. Um, and we've got some freedom hives, which are a sort of log hive that's attached to a tree. So it's very safe for people to watch the bees. And we use those colonies as a, as a source of swarms. And also, if you think of the bee colonies circulating around the estate, if they want to have a break of being fiddled with by humans or giving away honey, they've got these homes that they can have a year or two years in where they're just left to be wild. And what we're finding now, so we're year four, is that the bees have now, they're now producing more propolis, which is really good for them. That's their, their protector, it's antiviral, antibacterial you know wonderful substance so they're producing more of that we also find that they they become more calm and they're actually bigger honey honey producers so by working with them instead of pushing them um, we, we very much work with each individual colony's um, rhythms I suppose. So what are the ambitions for um, beekeeping at the newt? Well with all aspects of the newt it's about um, it's farm to fork, so it's having things that are produced on that land the highest quality way they can be and maintaining as much of that quality as it gets to the plate. So we have been producing honey, but what we're doing that is quite different is because we take small quantities little and often, we know exactly which hive the, 
any jar of honey has come from, but we also know the plant source. So because I studied honey sensory analysis, I want to build up a library of our plant sources. So what's really interesting is this year, one of our colonies, we've had this honey that I'd never tasted before, and it wasn't on any of my, my database from Italy from studying. But luckily I was judging for the International London Honey Awards and a fellow judge from Yorkshire, I was talking to him about this honey and describing it. And he said, oh, that's laurel. And we have a lot of laurel hedges across the estate. And I'd seen them full of bees, but I just hadn't thought it would have such a distinctive flavour. So what we're doing now is we're having jars of honey and you'll know the names, so you'll know if it's Winifred's or if it's Alison or if it's Emily's honey and also what the flower source is. So we have lime tree honey, we have the laurel, we've also had um, dandelion honey, which is my favourite. So I suppose that's the thing, it's, it's having fine quality. Um, and I work, what is lovely is I do get to work quite closely with the chefs. So they, and in the hotel with the cocktail barman, he's been producing cocktails using newt honey. And there's yogurt that you can have now with newt honey. When the hotel would use our honey for breakfasts and for guests, and they're using them for different meals. So it's, it, it is really exciting. You know, the scope is, is um, endless really. So we're now going to play Somerset Levels, which is an original game created by Somerset Stories where you have to guess whether locations in Somerset will be higher or lower than the previous. And by higher or lower, we're talking about their altitude above sea level. <gasps> wow. Should we give it a go? Yep, let's give okay. it a go. So I'm going to pull out locations from this hat and you will tell me if you think the next one is going to be higher or lower. Oh, right. Okay. So it. There's no idea at yeah, all. It is a luck absolutely thing. no idea. Oh, good. And good. the first location that you've got is Clark's Village in Street, which stands at 58 feet above sea level. So the next one would be higher. You think higher? Yeah. Okay, we'll go with higher. It is higher. Ah. The Dovecote in Bruton. Oh, okay. Which is 283 feet above sea level. So a little higher, but not. we're not talking Exmoor Heights with that one. No but I think the next one will be lower. You think lower? Yeah. It is lower. <gasps> Ashton Windmill. Have you been up there? No, it's I haven't. It's very pretty. But... It's um, up by Wedmore. Ah. Oh. Yeah. And a windmill, that low. So it's lower mm. than the Dovecot. Well, because it's Wedmore, it's sort of only a little bit above where the levels are. So it doesn't, oh, doesn't need to be too high. they've just restored that, haven't they? I think so, yeah. yeah. Oh. All right, oh, well, so you're so at 150, one, sorry, 142 feet, Ashton Ash Windmill. Is the next one going to be higher or lower? Higher. It is higher. It is Wells Cathedral. <gasps> oh. Beautiful building. And it is 387 feet above sea level. Oh, gosh. Okay, so the next one lower. You think lower? Mm, okay. Yeah, borderline now. Oh, it is lower. Oh. It's Wincanton Racecourse, which is, which is 380 feet above sea level. Oh, wow. So you're doing pretty well here. So you're at 380 feet. Do we think the next is higher or lower? Oh, I'm going to go higher just for excitement. It is higher. Oh. The East Somerset Steam Railway, oh. which is in Cranmore. Have yeah. you been? Yes, yeah. Uh, I've not yet, but I'm going to take the kids at some point and uh, 
yeah, hopefully they'll love it. Oh, yeah. Oh, how high was that? That is 604 feet above sea level. Okay, lower. Lower. It is lower. <gasps> You're very good at this game. Um, the parade at Western Supermare, oh. 30 feet above sea level. Oh, right, okay. So the next one higher. You think higher? Yeah, unless it's Mark. I mean, it could be. Or much of me. It's not, it's Royal Crescent in Bath, oh. which is 185 feet above sea level. Gosh, so still lower than the Dovecot. Well, I think as Bath's in a, in a valley, isn't it? Oh, So yes. River Valley, wow. but then Royal Crescent is a, a little bit raised, but it's not, Gosh. it's not too high. So what's that? So 100? you're at 185 feet higher or lower? Ah, uh, lower. Lower. Oh, I'm afraid it's higher. Uh, it's Jack and Jill Hill which is at Kilmerston, ah. uh, which stands at 394 feet. Gosh, it's quite high. Yeah, the story behind that is that it's meant to be the original setting for the nursery rhyme. Oh, wow. Well, and I tell you something interesting that's linked to that. Um, with the, oh no, it's with the hole in my bucket. And you know, he fixes it with straw, which I always thought was really odd. But when you make a straw beehive, then they're watertight. So actually you would make um, so you weave a basket out of straw, and it is watertight. Wow. Yeah. So the buckets might well have been straw. Fixed with straw. And that's why you fix it with straw. Yeah. Well, you've got seven right. Oh, thank you. Which is very good. <gasps> good. Very good. There's no prize. Oh, uh, okay. But, but for my competitive nature, it's That's it's quite the good. joint highest <gasps> that we've had so far. Oh, wow. Oh, so, good. Who was the other one then who got... Uh, that was Luke and Thomas, who are at the clock spire in Melbourne Oh, Port. right. Okay. Yeah. Oh. So very exciting. Thank you so much for your time. Before we go, where can people find out more about the work you're doing, the books you've written, uh, everything that, you, um, that you've created? Okay, well, thank you. Well, paulacarnell.com is my website. Um, I'm most active, I suppose, on Instagram, and that's paula.carnell. And I'm also on Facebook. I've got a Facebook page, which is Creating a Buzz um, about health. And I'm doing a series of webinars. So the website for that is webinars.paulacarnell.com. And I'm also launching in September a naturopathic beekeeping course. So if you follow the webinars or you follow Instagram or my Facebook, then you'll see how to, how to find out more about the courses. But there is a website and it's courses.paulacarnell.com. So just have a, have a search, an internet search, preferably using one of those ones that plants trees. Ecosa. I've just heard they've planted a hundred million trees now. So every time you click, you help plant a tree. That's so, fantastic. Uh, yeah. So let's go Ecosa and uh, for paulacarnell.com. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for your time. You've been a wonderful guest and a fantastic host. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Somerset Stories. You can subscribe on Spotify, Google, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram at Somerset Stories or email us hello at somersetstories.com. See you next time.